Love it. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. To Mark chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 16. And we're going to begin this look at the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's gripping, and it is, is wonderful, and it's scary, and his life is unlike any other life that's ever been lived. So let's stand together and read this word from the living God. And then we'll pray and we will get into this text this morning. This is the word of the living God. Mark writes, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Wow, you can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, you are holy and you are good. And Lord God, you are the author of truth. And we humble ourselves before you this morning and confess that apart from your grace and apart from the ministry of your Holy Spirit, we could never begin to understand the implications of what we've just read this morning. We could never really grasp the glory of Christ in the text that we've read this morning. And so, God, we're praying that you will come and, Lord, you'll teach us. I pray that, Father, your, your desire would be to instruct our souls in your divine truth. And that to that end, you would pour out your Spirit upon us and that, Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher and that we, you would do exactly what, what your mission is, which is to glorify Christ. And you would show us Christ in truth in these words today. Lord, we truly are longing and desiring for personal and corporate revival. That we won't just go through the motions and this won't be, you know, church as usual. But that you would powerfully arrest our hearts. 
that you'd inflame our love for you, that you would give us a determination and a, a, a made-up mind and a, and a sanctified will to resist and reject temptation and instead to walk in holiness and godliness and uprightness. I pray, Lord God, that we would hang this morning on every word that, that has the unction of the Spirit. I pray, Lord God, that you would indeed empty me of myself, that you'd grant me the Holy Spirit in greater measure, Lord, that you would give me unction to preach your word faithfully and accurately and unashamedly. And Lord God, that, that this time of our being in the word together as your people would be the richest moment of time that we would spend all week long because we're communing with you. So bless us, please. And open your word to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, beloved, this morning we're starting to get into the meat of, uh, of Mark's gospel. We're starting to get into the meat of the story. We're starting to get into the, you know, the past the prologue and, and into the, this, this account of the life of Christ. And I, I want you to remember, you know, as we're getting into this this morning, I want you to remember how we saw last week Mark identifying this mightier one that was to come, right? This one of whom John the Baptist had been forerunner and herald. How he identified this mighty one, the mightier one, through a series of three vignettes, right? Three pictures that he gave to us. Three pictures that, that put on display the uniqueness and the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so remember, in the first vignette, we saw Jesus, right, coming to John and undergoing John's baptism of repentance, right? Remember that? He comes to the Jordan River. He presents himself. He's in the long line of everybody else who is sinners. He's not. But he's in that line, and he goes in, and he's baptized by John the Baptist. And he's baptized not, you know, because he needs to repent. There are no sins for which he needs to repent. But he's baptized to be numbered with us, right? To be numbered with the transgressors. To be identified with us. To take his place among us and to put himself forward as God's servant and our Savior. The only one that can stand in our place and rescue us from divine wrath by bearing the, the weight and the debt of our sins and the judgment of God on our behalf as our substitute, right? The very judgment that John's baptism portrayed, right? Right? And in that moment, you'll remember that something extraordinary took place. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, you remember that the heavens were rent open before him, right? And he could see into heaven is the idea. And that the Spirit of God descended upon him, really into him, right? Anointing him like a dove. And then there was this voice that rung out in the wilderness this voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. It was God's testimony, Father God's testimony of his full, indescribable, everlasting, incomprehensible love for his son from all of eternity, right? And it was also a declaration of the Father's pleasure in his obedience 
to his divine mission to come into this world and save sinners. It was a groundbreaking, earth-shattering moment, right? But then we move to the second vignette, right? Because we're told immediately the, the, the Holy Spirit drove the Lord Jesus Christ into the wilderness, right? He drove him out even to a, a further wilderness from the Jordan River. The wilderness there wasn't enough. He needed to go further, right? And he drove him out into the wilderness to be tested and to be tried and to be proven. And so for 40 days, he faced the vicious and the unrelenting assault of Satan. Every attempt to break him, to cause him to sin, to render him ineffective and insufficient as Savior. But though tempted in every way as we are, he emerged sinlessly victorious. He proved he was the second Adam at a far greater disadvantage. And then, rising triumphantly from that confrontation, Mark tells us that the Lord Jesus began his public ministry announcing that the time was fulfilled, that all the Old Testament prophecies that talked about the Messiah coming, all the Old Testament prophecies that talked about God in heaven bringing salvation, they had all come to their fruition in him. Time was complete. There's nobody else they were, they, they were to look for. He was it. And more than that, the kingdom of God was present in him because he's the king of the kingdom, right? And then he began his preaching. And it was very direct and it was very clear. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. It, it wasn't be entertained. Have all your feels tickled. Be made much of and have people fawn all over you and minimize the Lord. It was repent and believe the gospel. Because it's not about you and your feels. It's about you and your soul, which is lost. And you need a Savior. And He's the only one. So repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in Him, right? Now when Jesus first began preaching that, His life was going to define the content of that word gospel, right? Right? He's going to give a, a, a... Now on this side of the cross, we know, we know you know, the, the fullness of the message of the gospel, right? We know that, that this call to repent and to turn away from our sin and to continue turning away from our sin, remember, it's repent and keep on repenting, and it's believe and keep on believing. That's what it says in the Greek. We know that this repenting and turning away from our sin and forsaking our wickedness, our self-justification, our excuse-making, which is our native tongue, Right? It's to turn away from sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and believe in him as your only hope of salvation. Believe that his, that his righteous life lived in your place and his atoning death, that he died to pay the guilt for your sins and his resurrection from the dead are sufficient and powerful to save sinners to the uttermost and that's good news because you're a sinner, right? That's the gospel. There's only one way into God's kingdom. Repent and believe. Repent and believe in Christ as a sole means of salvation. Right? So now, this morning, with the identification of this mightier one complete, right? We know it's Jesus. We don't have any question about who John's talking about. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, having completed the identification of this mightier one, Mark now turns 
to really the beginnings of Christ's public ministry. He turns to the beginnings of Christ's public ministry. And there's a few things that I want for us to keep in mind. And you might want to write these down. You might not. Maybe you'll just remember them. There's some things I want you to keep in mind here about, about Mark's gospel. The first thing I want you to keep in mind is this, is that Mark's account of Christ's ministry is not exhaustive. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Mark's account of Christ's ministry is not exhaustive, right? You know that if when you read the other Gospels, right? Because there's events and there's, and there's teaching and there's stories and stuff that, that don't appear in Mark. And so Mark is not, he's not exhaustive in what he records. Then, but the second thing I want you to remember is this. Is that Mark strings the events that he chooses to mention. He strings them together in a certain way to emphasize certain aspects of Christ's revelation. He strings them together in a certain way in order to emphasize certain aspects of Christ's revelation. And then the third thing is this, is that though Mark does preserve for us some of the teaching of Jesus, Mark prefers to show us who Jesus is primarily by what Jesus does. Okay? He prefers to show us who Jesus is primarily by what Jesus does. In other words, this is an action-oriented gospel. Okay, This is one that keeps your attention. This isn't one that, that it's not like a, you know, a movie that has too much dialogue that makes you doze off. It's not like that at all. It moves from scene to scene to scene. This is like an action movie, okay? And yet, ironically, when Mark starts describing for us the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not with a mighty miracle, right? It's not with some awesome sermon. It's not with some remarkable thing that he does, right? At least not seemingly remarkable. Instead, he begins describing his ministry with his calling, the irresistible calling, of four fishermen to follow him. The irresistible calling of four fishermen to follow him. Look at this with me again, starting in verse 16. Look at it again. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets. And followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So the question is when we look at this, right? This isn't allegorical. It's not like we're supposed to find a meaning in every phrase. The question is. Here Mark presents for us this really scaled down description of his calling of his first four disciples, these fishermen. What is it that Mark is meaning for us to see here regarding the Lord Jesus Christ? Like, how does this give us a picture into who Jesus is? Well, I'm glad you asked, even though you didn't. Here's how. I want to make sure we understand. Notice, Mark doesn't tell us but, but this wasn't the first time that Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John had seen Jesus. It's not. This isn't the first time they'd ever had any interaction with him. Okay? So what's, what's the deal? 
Is Mark being sneaky? No, Mark is not being deceptive here at all. But what he is doing is he's making a point. By choosing not to tell you that they had had interaction before, he's making a point. And here's, here's what it is. He doesn't want us to imagine or to surmise that these men had seen Jesus and then they'd sat around in sort of a fisherman colloquial, colloquial, colloquium and discussed whether or not they should actually follow Jesus. Would it be a good idea? Do you think we ought to give up what we're doing this, this great, you know, and rather profitable business of being fishermen, you know, on, on the Sea of Galilee and follow Jesus, maybe it'd be fun to go have an adventure before we settle down. That's not it at all. He doesn't want us to think that they had seen Jesus and been thinking about coming to him for discipleship because to think that would be wrong. It would be wrong. Jesus comes looking for them, right? Jesus he comes seeking them out where they are. Jesus isn't the one like John the Baptist out in the wilderness saying, hey, y'all, come on out here. Instead, he's going exactly where these guys are. He's, he's inserting himself, Jesus is, in the middle of their everyday lives. They don't go seeking him. They don't go seeking him. He came seeking them. And that he does so is an act of sheer grace. You hearing me? Jesus comes to these men with a divine summons. There's no preamble. There's no nothing. He comes with a divine command. An irresistible call. He just looked at these men. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And you know what? They do. Just like that. They do. Just like that, they leave everything behind to go and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we to draw from that? Again, Jesus hasn't given them this big, long preamble here. He just speaks to them, and they're compelled to obey. And what Mark wants us to see, beloved, is that when Christ calls them to follow him, when he calls them into a unique relationship and fellowship with him, when he calls them to be his disciple, which is synonymous or analogous to being a Christian. It's the same thing. When people say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a disciple. You're not a Christian at all. When God calls, when, when Christ speaks, right? It is an irresistible, effectual call and a command that they cannot deny. They can't defy it. They can't resist it. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks, and, and they're just compelled immediately in their souls to follow him. And you know why that is? It's because Christ's call, his effectual call, his irresistible call comes with the power to affect the human will, to subdue and change your sinful will, to cause someone to respond in obedience. Christ's irresistible and effectual call, beloved, it lays hold of the human heart, it overcomes all resistance, and it transforms the fallen will of man. It makes a heart new, praise God. And it provides the will and the desire to respond to the Lord, to respond to Christ in faith. And if it didn't, if the call of God did not have that power, none of us would be saved. 
The Lord shows up unexpectedly. He shows up without, without any preparation, without any explanation. And he tells them, leave everything. Follow me. Become my disciples. I'll make you fishers of men. And they do just that. There's no hesitation. There's no quibbling. There's no second thoughts. They leave everything they know behind, just like Abraham did when, when God came to him in Ur of the Chaldees and said, come on, I'm going to take you to a land that you don't know. There's no thought to disobey here. There's no thought at all. Because the Lord is sovereign, because he is the sovereign king of the universe, the time had come for these four men to leave their life of being fishermen and to be summoned to a new life to another calling, to fellowship and discipleship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it made perfect sense to these men in the moment when they heard it. It instantaneously made sense to them, and they did it. They did it. Mark wants us to see here. He does not want us to miss something. He makes us, wants us to see very clearly that, beloved, Christ is sovereign over the life of men and women, including you. He's sovereign over our will and he's sovereign over our souls and he is sovereign over every single moment of our lives. You hearing me? And with a word, the Lord Jesus manifested his sovereign choice of these men out of everybody else that day on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he passed all of them by and chose these four guys. These four men. And he declared his right to complete and total allegiance, a right that takes priority over everything else, even kinship, even family, even family. Do you see that? James and John left their father and the hired men, and they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. And that call Beloved, is what Christ does really with everyone whom he calls to himself, everyone whom he calls to be his disciple, everybody whom he purchases by his blood. He effectually and irresistibly calls us into a saving relationship with him, and there's nothing that we can do but come running. At the time of his choosing, he exercises his sovereign right, and he calls, and with that call comes the power to change our will and turn our desire from sin and self and turn it to him. Isn't that, it's like what we sing in that song, I Got Saved, right? Remember remember that song we sing? I Got Saved, remember the line? His will is stronger. That's why I got saved, right? Not I'm smarter than everybody else. Not I have a better understanding than anybody else did. Not that I'm more virtuous and upright than anybody else. No, his will is stronger. That's why I got saved. He lays the emphasis, Mark does, on the call of, of Christ because he wants us to see that, that Christ's call of these men has nothing to do with anything but his sovereign choice. Follow along with me. I mean, I've, I've heard preachers say, you probably have too. I've heard preachers say, you probably have too, that when Jesus was looking for his disciples, he was very strategic. He chose fishermen because fishermen are patient and they're persistent. Fishermen are focused and hard workers. Fishermen, you know, they, they, they stick to it through the odds. Fishermen are, that is all a crock. Do you understand that? I mean, that may be true of fishermen. It's certainly not true of all fishermen. I don't know about you, but I've been out fishing when I've seen guys that weren't too industrious doing some fishing, sitting in a, a, a you know, a, a fold-out chair with a fedora pulled over their face and a fishing pole out there in the water. That, that's not it at all. That's not it at all. 
Jesus did not choose these men because they had some unique qualities nobody else had. That's not it. Why do I say that? Brother, that's a strong thing to say. You better have something to back it up. Well, I do. And it's right here. It's the words of Jesus. Look what he says. The, the Lord Jesus Christ says to them, I will make you become fishers of men. I will make you become. I will. He's not choosing them for what they are in the moment. He's choosing them in order to fashion and mold and form and make them. The phrase here, make you become, it's a word that's used to describe and explain divine creative power. The power to, to completely transform, undo and redo and shape and mold to God's purposes. It's not the idea of taking a piece of clay or a vessel that's already been made and pinching off a, a, a rough spot here and a rough spot there and here a spot, there a spot, there a little spot spot. It is the idea of taking that vessel absolutely unmaking it and making it again. These men weren't chosen because of anything in them. They were chosen because Christ chose them. Mark gives us no reason to believe that they were chosen by Jesus because they were more moral or upright or they had greater gifts or they were in any way better than somebody else might have been for the mission that was at hand. They're not. There is nothing about these guys being anything in this text. The focus is on Christ and his choice. He chose them because he chose them. He chose to make them his own and to fashion them for his purpose. Now here's the question. Did these guys become men of valor? Yeah. Did they become men of courage and upright and blameless men? Did they, did they become men of endurance and faithful servants of the living God? Yes, they did. But listen, Christ's faithful disciples, though they turned the world upside down, they did not become such men without a great deal of sanctifying work by the Lord Jesus Christ. Did they? Did they? There had to be times. Well, I know Jesus knows the end from the beginning. But when we're reading these Gospels, there are times when, when you watch these guys and you're thinking, are they ever going to get it? Isn't that true? They had to be fashioned by the Lord. Like us, listen, they, they were not worthy of salvation. Like us, they needed grace. Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. I don't know how many times people need to hear that until they believe it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. None of it's your own doing. Not even your faith. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works, so that nobody may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in them these men were irresistibly called right by the lord jesus to come to him for a specific purpose what was it that they would become fishers of men that they would join him in his mission jesus had come he'd, he'd been preaching and calling men and women to repent and believe in the gospel and, and that the kingdom of god had come right and he called these men to join in that mission to believe and to proclaim the gospel and to witness to the glory of Christ and to expend their lives for the sake of the gospel so that sinners might be saved. They were no longer to be identified as fishermen. They were now fishers of men, period. Right? J.C. Ryle says, 
The meaning of this expression is clear and unmistakable. The disciples were to become fishers for souls. They were to labor to draw men and women out of darkness into light. And from the power of Satan and unto God, they were to serve, to strive, I mean, to bring men and women into the net of Christ's church so that they might be saved and not perish everlastingly, right? And we're about to move on from this, from this section. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about this and how it relates to us, Okay. I know that none of us are called in the same way that these men were. We're not, right? These men were the Lord's original disciples, later apostles, and their lives were unique. However, there are some things that all disciples share in common or should share in common. And we see them exemplified by these men here. First, these men left their old lives for the kingdom of God. They left everything behind that would in any way hamstring them or, 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 or you know, somehow undermine them or restrain them. Anything that would get in the way of singular devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, we need to be willing to do the same thing. The same thing. The same thing. We're called. We are saved. For the sake of Christ and his kingdom, right? Beloved, you know the truth. If you're a Christian, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And there's an expectation. What is it? So glorify God, what? In your body. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. And whatever may have been the scope of your highest desires, it needs to be replaced. Your greatest desire needs to be the glory of God. Because that's why you're saved. That's the agenda for your life. The agenda for your life above everything else needs to be Christ in his kingdom. Because here's the deal. Christ in his kingdom, I want you to hear me when I say this. I want you to hear me when I say this. Because this is the difference between somebody who's truly a Christian and somebody who's make-believe. Christ and his kingdom are not an accessory to your life. Christ and his kingdom are not accessories to your life. They're not part of a well-rounded nutrition program. Jesus Christ and his kingdom are not accessories to your life. He is your life. He is your life. Now that doesn't mean that all of our lives will look exactly the same. That's not the point. There are a myriad of different ways in which As disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are servants and fishers of men for him. But beloved, here's the deal. In all that we are, in heart and soul, in word and deed, in our own hearts, and in the lives of our families, in the church, in the world, our great calling is to magnify Christ, to live as he commands, to serve his kingdom, because that's what it means to follow Jesus. It means putting away All the things in our lives that interfere and oppose that agenda. Even sometimes things that are just, are good. Sometimes we have to leave our nets behind, right? If you will. So that we can follow Christ more faithfully. So that our lives will count for eternity. It's not a matter, I want you to hear me when I say this. It's not a matter of just doing some grand thing one time. 
and that glorifies God. That's not it. It's not a matter of just doing some grand thing one time for Jesus. Instead, it's honoring him as sovereign Lord in all things, all the time, whether great or small. Are you hearing me? So Christ comes to this shore in Galilee, man. He comes and he, he irresistibly calls these men to himself as his disciples. And he promised them the power to become fishers of men. And, and they respond in faith, right? And they follow. But beloved, we need to remember something here. We need to remember that at this point, the disciples' faith was not yet fully formed, right? Right? Like from our 2,000 years later vantage point, we, 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 can, we can look at it, it's easy, and it's easy for us to forget that these men were just learning who Christ was. And there was a lot to learn, right? right? There's a lot to learn. So here they are, they've been irresistibly compelled to follow him. They probably couldn't even explain why. They just knew, Right? But questions must have filled their minds. Like, you can get it, right? I mean, who, who was Jesus, really? I mean, we know we can't resist his call. Like, it's like a tractor beam. But who is he? And, and does he really have the kind of power and authority that, that he's talking about? And, beloved, whatever questions they may have had, started to be powerfully and unmistakably answered in a synagogue in Capernaum. Look at this. Look at this. Verses 21 and, and 22. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Immediately after describing for us how Jesus calls his first disciples, then Mark recounts for us the events of what appears to be the very next Sabbath day, most likely in the synagogue that these four fishermen attended in Capernaum. And for those of you who don't know, a synagogue, a synagogue was just a local house of worship, okay? It was a local house of, of worship, a, a place for the regular gathering, uh, for instruction in the Jewish scriptures and for prayers and for fellowship, Right? Like, everybody didn't travel to the temple on this every Sabbath. And so in the individual towns in Israel, there would be this synagogue. It's a holdover from, really, the Babylonian captivity. And they would gather together on the Sabbath day, and they'd, you know, worship together and read the Scripture and do all that. So Jesus comes to this synagogue with the four disciples in tow, and he begins to teach. And Mark says they're astonished. Mark says they are astonished. The disciples and, and everybody else in the synagogue, they are struck with the authority and the weight of his teaching. In fact, the word in Greek that, for astonished here, ekpleso, is a word, a strong word that means to strike a person out of his senses. Like if Jerry Grubb just walks up to you and clubs you across the head, right? You're out of your mind for a while, right? Right? And that's the picture here. It's like they're just struck out of their senses. They were blown away. They were amazed and they were stunned. And, and, and they were even a little bit fearful is the idea of this word. Right? And what Mark wants us to see, beloved, is that hearing Jesus teach, hearing Jesus teach was not a comfy little experience. I want to say that again. Hearing Jesus preach 
and teach was not a comfy little experience. It wasn't puppies and rainbows and butterflies and teddy bears. Wasn't some syrupy sweet Jesus telling of his romantic type love for you above all others. Like you read in that tri- tripe that Sarah Young puts out, Jesus Calling, where she, she kind of channels Jesus and tells you what he's thinking. Thank you, Sarah, we don't need you. We've got the word of God and the canon's closed. Right? To hear Jesus teach was shocking and amazing and arresting. It wasn't a warm fuzzy fuzz. It was arresting. And you know why? Because he taught with authority. And that's the Greek word exousia. And it means rule and authority or dominion or the power and the right of command. In other words, Jesus had a command presence when he preached. Are you, are you, are you understanding what I'm saying? He had a command presence. Like Jesus filled the room when he preached, when he taught. There wasn't any escaping it. The scribes, on the other hand, you know, he didn't, he didn't speak like the scribes. The scribes, you know what they were? Here's what the scribes were. I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll explain them to you very shortly. Here's what the scribes were. The scribes were guys who were masters of speaking much and saying nothing. That's what they were. They would take a point of the law, right? Whatever it might be. They would take a point of the law. And they would monotonously belabor it until you wanted to punch him in the face. They would just, they would apply it and, and just talk about it to no meaningful end. They would speak in trivialities and they would quote every single rabbi under the sun and talk in vagaries, but they never came to the truth. There was never, they never said anything worth hearing. And that, this would be like this. It would be like me standing up here and saying, uh, for my sermon this morning, we're going to discuss John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, John Owen, John Calvin, you know, Edwards, you know, Brooks and Burroughs. And I'm going to take what each one of these guys says and we'll just compare them to one another, but we'll never get to anything in the end. You'd want to pull your hair out, wouldn't you? I'd want to pull my hair out if I had any. Praise God, he didn't teach like the scribes did. And no wonder he did. He, he didn't teach like them. Because when Jesus spoke, beloved, it was the word of God. He was the word of God incarnate teaching the word of God's eternal truth. It doesn't get better than that. He spoke in absolute terms. He spoke with clarity and authority. There was no gray with Jesus. He didn't need to quote anybody because he's the author of truth. He spoke of matters of true significance that the scribes never seemed to get around to. He talked about the knowledge of God. He talked about life and death and eternity. He spoke of righteousness and of holiness and obedience unto the Lord. He described the way to true peace and true joy. He talked about salvation and judgment. He didn't need to quote anybody else. Because his words came from the very heart and the mind of God himself. And so for that reason, when the Lord Jesus Christ taught, he did so with a power and authority that demanded a response. That demanded a response. And you see it all throughout Jesus' teaching in the scriptures. There was no room for quibbling over Christ's words. There was no room for, you know, 
wrangling over what Jesus had to say. There was no room for debating what he said. No loopholes to be sought out and discovered. When Jesus speaks, what he says is binding truth. Okay? I'm going to say that again. When Jesus speaks, what he says is binding truth. And you can either receive it for your everlasting good, or you can reject it and reframe it to your everlasting destruction. But the one thing you can't do is ignore it. You can't. His truth is binding on every single human soul, whether they want to admit it or not. These people in the synagogue, they heard Jesus preach, and man, they had never heard anything like it, not ever. Not ever. He brought divine truth to that synagogue that day, and it astonished, and it amazed, and it arrested everyone who heard it. You know what else it did? It led to an explosive confrontation. Look at this, man. Starting in verse 23. This is, this would, if you were in the room when this happened, your hair would be standing up all over your body. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Ho, ho, ho. Right? If they had iPhones back then, people are filming this. Right? This is on Insta immediately. You want to talk about Insta? Oh, yeah. Right? The presence of the Lord, right? The presence of his preaching immediately led to an explosive confrontation between the Lord Jesus Christ and an unclean spirit, and a demonic spirit who had taken possession of a man in this congregation. I want to make sure we understand this. It's not that Jesus was there at the synagogue that day and he's preaching and some demon-possessed dude accidentally stumbles in to the service. That is not the idea here at all. The idea here is This man was a part of the congregation, and apparently he had been for a while. He was a member of this congregation, and and no one knew that he was demon-possessed. In fact, it's interesting to me that this demon had been undisturbed, completely comfortable, unrevealed, and completely at ease in this synagogue for so very long. How could that be? I'll tell you how that can be. It's because it had been a long time that the presence, since the presence of God had been in that synagogue. Or a long time since the word of God had been preached in that synagogue, if it had ever been. If it had ever been. Diamond, demons thrive, beloved, in spiritual darkness, don't they? Don't they? Go like this. They do. And Christ's first demonic encounter in his public ministry was in a place of worship. Spiritual darkness in a place of worship. 
a demon comfortable in a place of worship. How can that be? It's simple. Demons thrive in false religion. They thrive in false religion. Paul wrote to Timothy, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In other words, false teachers are instruments of Satan. They don't just get it a little wrong. They're not just a little off. They're not to be pitied. They're instruments of Satan. Are you hearing me? False professors and apostates, they're under the dominion of Satan. They're under his sway. And it's not just the obvious false religions. Okay, let's, let's make sure we get this, right? It's not like Jesus on the Sabbath day went to a synagogue where they were worshiping Baal or Molech or Asherah, the Asherah tree. No. He's going to a synagogue where, at least on the surface of it, they are worshiping Yahweh God. But you know what? Not all synagogues are truly, were, were truly synagogues of God in Christ's day. Just as not all churches are Christ's churches in our own. This demonic presence was hidden. It was secret. It was, it was covert. It was, un, it, was, it was concealed. But you know what? It was there. And this demon had influence through this person he demonized. But he's smart. He didn't bring attention to himself. No one was the wiser. That devil was just never disturbed because there was no real voice from God in that synagogue. Just as people who are influenced by spiritual darkness can often coexist in the church until the word of God is brought to bear against them. And that's not just an ancient problem, you know, this whole thing. Listen, Paul dealt with this problem of men who presented themselves as servants of the Lord, but who were not. And he said of them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and starting in verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, but their end will correspond to their deeds. Demons don't advertise themselves. People who are, whose mind and thoughts and hearts are influenced by demons, they don't raise their hand and go, hey, my thoughts are demonized. I'm not thinking in terms of anything spiritual or godly at all. They don't do that. They stay in the shadows as long as they can. Satan presents himself as an angel of light. He's, he tries to attract you. He's attractive. Sounds good. Demons and demonic influences, they run under the radar, even in a so-called house of worship. But what do we see here? What we see is this. Christ comes into this synagogue. Everyone is arrested by his teaching. In other words, nobody's pitchforking anything to anybody else. The word of God is hitting everybody in the face. And the presence of God and the word of God taught with authority 
confronts and disturbs and exposes this demon. He cannot remain in the shadows, but he cries out. Literally, he shrieks. He's in terror. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Make sure you understand this. This is not a passive response to the presence of Christ. It is a fitful, agitated, again, shrieking response to the presence of Christ and his truth. And it is a powerful moment, beloved. The works of darkness cannot remain hidden in the purifying and in the piercing light of Christ's presence and the word of God spoken with authority, praise God. And now comes the confrontation. And see this with me, right? It's a clash of kingdoms. you got to see that. When the, when, the, when the demon says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? That is the language of battle. In fact, if you look back in the Old Testament, you will see kings saying similar things to one another when they face each other on a battlefield. This is a battle. It's a fight. It's a, it's a warfare that's going on. It's a war between the kingdom of darkness and the king. And that was an amen somewhere. It's a, it's a match between, a war between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of our Lord. And guess what? The demon knows the end. He knows the end. He knows he's going to lose. He just doesn't know when. He knows that he's no match for the power and the authority of Christ. He knows that his ultimate fate is destruction. It's hell. It's the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, right? He knows that. He cries out because he knows that his fate is sealed he just doesn't know when. And he cries out, beloved, because he knows better than anyone else in that room who Jesus really is. He knows better than anybody else in that room in that moment exactly who Jesus is. He is the Holy One of God. And the demon knows that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3 and verse 8. Jesus is infinitely stronger, beloved, than Satan and his demons. And to Jesus, they all must bow. And that's plainly borne out in what follows. Again, this is unlike anything anybody in this synagogue had ever seen. Okay? Like, this is a moment that's never happened before in anybody's life. I know who you are, and Jesus rebukes him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Now, here's the deal. The Jews in Jesus' day, they had seen, or at least they'd heard about exorcisms, right? And they're about like what you would expect. The same kind of stuff that we see that doesn't amount to anything, Right? It was the same kind of stuff where, you know, they had seen people, you know, for instance, that would go through a bunch of histrionics and, and, and do all this weird stuff. They would, you know, go through incantations. They had props that they would use. They would go through all of these different things, right? Right? All these techniques, none of it worked. And there's none of that here. 
There's only Christ's word of authority and power. Be silent and come out of him. Literally, that says, be muzzled. Shut up. And come out of him. And you know what? The matter's settled. Just like that. Instantaneously. This man's not delivered because he has enough faith to be delivered. He doesn't have any faith at all. This man's not delivered because he sowed a seed. He's not delivered by anything he's done or by anything that the elder of the synagogue did. He's delivered by the power of Jesus Christ. The irresistible, unmistakable power of Jesus Christ. What's the significance of this? Well, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. I want you, first of all, to see this. I want you to think about this now. For the Lord Jesus to be our Savior and our Redeemer, right? Obviously, He's got to be a perfect and a sufficient sacrifice for our sins, right? We know that. That makes sense. He's got to be able in Himself to satisfy the holy demands of God, uh, you know, against our sin, that, that the debt of sin would be paid in full and so we can receive the forgiveness of sins. He's got to be able to actually propitiate the wrath of God, right? Because he's perfect and sinless and, you know, blameless. There's got to be that. But that's not all. Because in order for his redemption to be applied to us, in order for his redemption to be applied to us, he must have the power to rescue us from the blinding clutches of Satan and his domain. He's got to be able to break the bondage of Satan and demons over the souls of sinners. He's got to have the power to deliver us, right? To release our souls from the bondage of sin and bring us under his rule so that we can hear the truth and be compelled by the Holy Spirit to believe it and so be taken out of darkness and into his kingdom of light. And he saves us. He does it like almost instantaneously, right? At the same time, or or, uh, not instantaneously, what is it? Simultaneously, right? But he he has to do that. All power is in his hands and he must do it. Does he really? Does he really have to do that? Yeah, beloved. We need to understand something and remember this. Okay? We need to understand something and remember this. Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world for a reason. Are you hearing me? He called him the ruler of this world for a reason. The Apostle John says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, right? Paul tells us how the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, right? Right? And he also says to us that as Christians, we were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the demon that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The issue for us is not just that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's that we are prisoners under the sway of Satan. And either Christ can overcome the strong man because he's stronger or he can't. And clearly from this text, what? He can. Right? He can. He does. His might is irresistible. 
Satan and his demons are present. They're active in this world. And it's not make-believe, beloved, it's truth. And only Christ can overpower and overcome them. You know what, if you'd have been in that synagogue on that day, if you'd have been in that synagogue on that day, you would have had, you would have left with absolutely zero doubt that there are powers at work in our midst, sometimes openly, but most times silently and surreptitiously and slyly and sneakily, but you would know that there are powers at work in our midst that are terrifyingly more powerful than we are. Right? You would have known that. You'd have believed it. You would have believed that there are, there are powers that are actively enslaving people and opposing the Lord Jesus Christ and opposing the truth of the gospel. And, and you know what, beloved? They're far more powerful and widespread than we realize or we want to acknowledge. Demonic influence, the influence of satanic thinking, it is found in every institution and arena of human experience, human existence, I mean, that you can think of. It's found in academia and in, in, in education. It's found in medicine. You think all doctors are good men? It's found in politics. You think all pop? No, nah, I won't even start. It, it, it's found in business and corporation, in every form of media. It's found in entertainment and sports. It's found in marriage and family. It's found in social clubs. It's found in, in psychology and psychiatry. It's found in social media and social commentary. It's found everywhere, even in the church. Even in the church. And these demonic influences, listen to me, they are at work to confuse and mislead and to hide the truth and distort the truth and mangle the truth and to blind the eyes of humanity to God and His Christ and therefore undermine God's holiness, righteousness, and authority. It's the whole point. You know it. Man, look at the current state of our world. Look at the current state of our world. People above the age of 50 never imagined we would be here right now where we are. Never. You look. You look at our, our, our world. The depth to which humanity has fallen. The limitless cruelty of human beings toward one another. The endless wars that we have to be involved in. Ukraine, Israel, Iran. What's next? You think about the rampant lawlessness and flagrant sin, the insanity, the irrationality, the false victimhood and irresponsibility, the rejection of, of legitimate authority, the pervasive and perverse sexual immorality and sexualization of almost everyone and everything. You think about the promotion of the LGBTQ agenda, the mad push to mutilate our children at the altar of transgenderism. The, the, you know, the climate cult that, that preaches the virtues of, depopula of depopulation. I mean, honestly, can we just step back and be honest for a moment and stop pretending like this is the 1950s? I mean, honestly, how telling is it that, you know, a political party in this country has made the central plank of its, quote, democratic agenda? The so-called essential freedom to murder and sacrifice unborn children on the altar of personal choice, selfishness, and convenience. Is there not something demonic about that? 
Yes, there is. I'm sick and tired of skirting around it. I'm sick and tired of acting like every political belief is the same. It's not. It's not. It's influenced by demons. All of this. And what's worse, it's all disguised under the cloak of freedom or self-determination or self-expression and as the path to happiness and fulfillment when what it really is is the path to death and destruction. Beloved, listen to me. This is the all-encompassing scheme of Satan to enslave the mind and the human soul and to keep it slave, to twist and blind and deceive and destroy. Because here's the deal. That diabolical question, that, that, that original one, did God really say is still the vilest and the most effective strategy that Satan ever employed and continues to employ? That's facts. He does it everywhere in this world. He infiltrates every single institution. And we act like there's no real difference between good and evil. It's just different opinions. That's garbage. He seeks to enslave the mind and therefore the beliefs and therefore the actions of everybody. Sometimes it's open, but most times it's a pleasant camouflage. Satan has so deluded and confused people as to make them think that the matter of life that, the matter, that life is really a matter of here and now, my happiness and not my holiness, a life that exists in this temporal, physical life with a tiny little spiritual component. And it's the exact opposite. Life is not a matter of a physical existence with a little bitty spiritual component. It's a spiritual existence with an itty bitty temporal, physical component. Your body's turning to dust. That's why you look older tomorrow than you did today, because you're dying. Your body's turning to dust, but your soul's going to exist forever. And your soul needs a rescuer. Your soul needs a conquering king. Your soul needs somebody capable of delivering you and keeping you, you know, from the power of forces that are far greater than you. And Jesus is that conquering king. Jesus is not only that conquering king, he's the only such king. You hearing me? The conquering presence of Christ and the word of God taught with authority in that synagogue that day confronted and destroyed the powers of the world of darkness and the demonic. He makes the darkness flee. And you know what? He still does it today. He still does it today. The Word of God taught and read and received in the power of the Holy Spirit. It confronts and it exposes demonic influences and manipulation and, and, and demonic mindsets. It exposes the error and the falsehood. It exposes evil thoughts, evil deeds, and the evil and the wickedness of those who are estranged from Christ. It draws a line between those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. And there's not a third category. You're one or the other. His truth confronts and exposes. And it compels those who are caught in the clutches of demonic influences either to repent and believe or to scatter from his presence. Where the word of God is taught in power, where it's preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, People cannot remain under the influences of the demonic, which is anything that opposes Christ. Okay, it's not like 
That's a special category. That's the category of all who are children of Satan. And you know what? Where the word of God is preached, people either respond in repentance and faith or they get out of Dodge. We need to hear and receive Christ's voice in the word of God if we're to be stable and sure and secure in this world of demonic lies. And so repent and believe. Know the presence of Christ and his voice in the word of God. Read it till you've heard him. Abide in him, remain in him, humble yourself before him, submit yourself to his authority and be his disciple and you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. That's why James tells us, believers, he says, James chapter 4, verses 7, first part of verse 8, submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But don't miss it here. Don't, I'll just resist the devil in the power of my own wisdom and understanding and strength. You're going to get smacked. It's submit yourself therefore to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Right? Our hope is Christ, his truth, period. And then we'll close just quickly by looking at this epilogue. Just look at it very briefly with me. Verses 27 and 28. Jesus works this great miracle. This great miracle of deliverance. And Mark says, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? And what is going on around here? (laughs) That's the idea. A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The people were dumbfounded. They were amazed, man. They were in awe. They were, they were overwhelmed, man. Rightly so. Wouldn't you be? A demon that was in their midst, they didn't even know it was there, that was cast out by the power of a word from the Lord Jesus, who demonstrated his authority and his power in his preaching and in his command over the spiritual world. And it stunned everybody. And as you can imagine, the news spread everywhere. Nobody could keep it silent, right? You know how it is. A lady in our church finds out she's pregnant. Don't tell anybody. Everybody knows in like 10 minutes, right? You know it's true. We do better with stuff we, you know, like, hey, there's this thing that's happened. Don't tell anybody. Okay, I won't. But if it's something good, like, she's pregnant. Man, there are already women in the congregation that assumed so and brought a baby blankie to give to her that day. Spreads everywhere, right? And I want you to notice something with me. I really want you to notice. Look at at these verses again. Notice this with me. We see the words amazed and questioned, right? But what word don't we see? Anybody want to guess? Where I'm going? Who said that? Brit's right. Believed. Nobody believed. Nobody saw this and believed. Now that doesn't mean that nobody in Capernaum was ever saved. That's not what I mean. Some did, obviously. Some did come to saving faith in Christ. But here's what I want to say to you. And I want you to hear me when I say this. I want you to definitely hear me when I say this. 
I don't want you to hear everything I say, but listen to me. Amazement's not faith. Amazement's not faith. The people in the synagogue that Sabbath, they had witnessed something extraordinary, right? They had, they had experienced really the trauma of holiness. The, the, an encounter with the Holy One of God, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. But can I tell you what? Such an experience is not enough for your soul. It's got to lead to faith. It's got to lead to loving and treasuring Christ and to worshiping and to serving him with a whole heart, to receiving his word. Beloved, hear me when I say this to you. Any experience with Christ that falls short of real faith and trust in him will ultimately condemn you. Did you hear me? John MacArthur said this, and this is pretty insightful. He said, the amazed people and the terrified demons will spend forever in the same lake of fire. Jesus doesn't want your astonishment. He doesn't want your amazement. He wants your fear. He wants you to fear him as judge and then run to him as savior. Isn't that interesting to think about it like that? Everybody in that room was terrified when that took place. They were scared. But that fear didn't lead to faith. I remember seeing Steve Lawson talking about how we're so, we, we just do it wrong when we present the gospel. He's like, we, we just talk about love, 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 love. But the love of God doesn't mean anything until you realize you are absolutely and thoroughly unlovable. It doesn't mean anything until you realize what I'm worthy of is God's divine hatred. The message of the gospel is not you're a pretty good person, but Jesus can take you to the next level because he loves you so much. The message of the gospel is you in yourself, you are a wretched, polluted, filthy, condemned human being because you have broken every law of God that you could imagine to break. And the ones you haven't broken, you probably wish you could have. You're not innocent and sweet and unblemished as the driven snow. You're a creature fit for hell. That's who you are by birth. Boy, that preacher's a jerk. That's hate speech. He's such a mean person. That's spiritual abuse. No, you know what that is? That's truth. And God loves sinners. With such an extraordinary love that when you were worthy of God's absolute, undiluted hatred and wrath, when you deserved nothing good at all from his hands, he determined to save those whom he chosen before the foundation of the world by sending his son Jesus Christ into this world, his beloved, beautiful blameless son 
to endure a life in this wretched sin hole. And he lived a life of utter perfection and righteousness. He was always, ever pleasing to his Father. And he fulfilled the law that you couldn't fulfill on your, you didn't want to fulfill, he did it on your part. And that death that you deserve, not just physical death, but the death of hell, he stood in your place and wore your sins, bore every single one of them before the face of the holy God and endured the wrath of the holy God such that the Father turned his face away from his own son and crushed him as you should have been crushed. And then he made him to rise from the dead on the third day. And he ascended into heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of God. And that's not because you did anything that was pleasing in God's eyes. And it's not because you came up with a way that the holy God could save you. It's because the holy God from eternity devised the redemptive plan by which he would save sinners. And he loved you with an everlasting love when he wasn't pleased with you at all. You've heard me say this before. I'll say it again. My first connection to the gospel, my first connection to Jesus Christ is not my goodness. It's my wickedness. It's my sinfulness. And if you say that you have no sin, you lie. And you make God a liar. The message of this text is clear. Jesus wants your fear and he wants you to fear him as judge so that you'll receive him and run to him as Savior. And that's the ultimate lesson of this text. Because he's the only one that can save you from your sin and from the sway of the evil one in this world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need you to bring, we need you to, bring to bear the truths of this text that we've looked at this morning. And I pray that you'll do it. I pray, Father God, for those that are in this room that are in your kingdom. That, Father, they would be arrested afresh and anew by the greatness of your authority and the greatness of your power and the greatness of your love. And I pray for those that are here this morning that are not in Christ, who are self-justifying or self-excuse-making or whatever. Lord, I pray that you help them to see that whatever it is that they're trusting in for a good result at the end of time, it's worthless and it's empty. They need Christ because he's the only conquering champion for the human soul. So I pray you move right now in our midst. I pray that, Father, you would convict and bring to repentance and encourage and undergird and stir up every soul here. And I pray you do it for the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name.